0: What an immense blessing it is for us to be together. I'm so grateful for those who are here with us in person today. We've got visitors with us. It's good to see you. A lot of our members are out. It's good to see you. We know there are several online as well. It's good to see you with us as well. What a great blessing that God has provided for us in being able to come together this way as family. And uh, if I can get my slides to work, we'll talk in just a moment here. Um, so... We just read from Hebrews chapter 6, the Hebrew writer talking about the importance of becoming imitators, verse 12, of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God warned the Israelites as they went into the promised land not to become imitators of those who lived there before them and their idolatry. And all through The Old Testament, God is prohibiting His people from imitating those who are around them. They're to be together as a family and sort of cut off from the Gentiles and not do the things the Gentiles did. But in the New Testament, over and over again, we get this exhortation to become imitators, not only of Christ Himself, but of those who also walk as Christ walked. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, "...Imitate me as I also imitate Christ." He had already said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he had urged them to imitate his ways and said, I've even sent you Timothy so that you'll see how I walk because he teaches the same thing I do and he walks the same way I walk and we've taught the same thing in all of the churches. And so there's a great lesson to be learned as we imitate those who are imitating Christ. Now, Christ is the goal. Christ is who we're to be looking at. But God understands the value of a good example, (laughs) And that helps me as I'm around other people who are a good example. It helps me to see in practice what some of the things the Lord is teaching looks like. And I learn by their good example. It also helps me to understand that my children are growing up looking at my example. And others around me are looking at my example. And so it helps me to keep my example clean and doing the things that the Lord uh, has given us to do. If you're in the book of Hebrews, I'd invite you to turn back a couple of pages with me to the very small book of Philemon. We'll spend most of our time today in this book of Philemon because I believe Philemon is a great letter to show us the example of Christ-likeness that is inherent in the life of Paul as he explains himself in this letter to his good friend Philemon. Now, this is a personal letter. It has become uh, registered and, and come down to us because it is an inspired personal letter. What I mean by that is likely this letter that came to Philemon originally wasn't one of the letters that would have been circulated and read aloud among all the churches. Eventually it became that. But I'd like to do a little exercise today because this is such a short epistle. I'd like to read the thing in its entirety That's what would have happened when, like, the book of Revelation would have come to a church. They would have read the thing in its entirety during one of their worship services, the book of James, a smaller epistle, or Philippians, or Ephesians. But with Philemon, we can do that fairly readily in our assembly today. So I want to read through the entire letter, and then we're going to break it down and look at this example of Paul being like Christ as he uh, explains this situation to his friend and brother Philemon. So let's read together the epistle of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphea, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgment of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, "'whom I have begotten while in my chains, "'who once was unprofitable to you, "'but now is profitable to you and to me. "'I am sending him back. "'You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, "'whom I wish to keep with me, "'that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. "'But without your consent I wanted to do nothing, "'that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, "'but voluntary. "'For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose,' "...that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand, I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides." Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. (laughs) Can you imagine being Philemon and receiving this letter? Sort of the mix of emotions you would have because all of a sudden you found out where your slave went. Your missing slave has turned up. You've probably already heard from others that Paul has harbored him. But Paul is now sending this letter of appeal. And So let's break down this letter into smaller sections. I'll probably read the second and third section again, but I'm not going to go back and reread the first section since we just read it. But it sort of sets up the situation for us here in Philemon verses 1 through 7. Paul is a prisoner in Rome. So this is going to be around 61 to 63 AD. It's his first imprisonment. This is not the one that ends in his death. This will be the first time he's there. Roughly 61 to 63 AD. We do know historically that he's let out later around 64. He's captured again and is eventually uh, put to death by Nero Caesar around 67 about the same time as the Apostle Peter. But this is earlier than that. This is his first imprisonment, the one that's mentioned at the end of the book of Acts, when he's appealed to Caesar, and he goes there and he's teaching the Jews openly in his own rented home, and he has opportunity to write these letters. He is a prisoner, yet he's got a certain amount of freedom, Luke tells us in in Acts chapter twenty eight. But it's interesting, though, even though he has appealed to Caesar, and he's technically in chains, being uh, awaiting the time that he gets to go before Caesar, he doesn't consider himself a prisoner of Rome. He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He has bound himself in chains to the service of the Lord. He is a prisoner in two senses: one under false pretenses. He has taken this gift to Jerusalem. We read about this starting about Acts 21. He carries this gift to Jerusalem. It's a gift that the Macedonian and Achaian saints have put together for those who are in need back in the, in the region of Judea. And when he gets there, he's traveling with a bunch of people from, from Asia and from Greece who are representing the churches that are involved in this offering. And as he goes into the temple, some Jews from Asia see him with a man who is from Ephesus, which is in Asia, in the, in the Roman province of Asia. And they believe he's taken this Gentile into the temple. And so they raise up this big stink and they end up uh, arresting Paul. Well, they're trying to put him to death. So Paul has it so that he gets taken down to Caesarea, where he'll get a little bit of time and can appear before the Roman leadership. And finally, when he realizes there's no good way for this to end, after two long years, perhaps even more, that he's sat in prison... He finally appeals to Caesar and is told then that he can go off to Rome because he is a Roman citizen. So it sounds like he's a prisoner of Rome, but he understands that all of this is because of his service before the Lord, his doing the will of Christ. Christ was put to death by Rome, but he was put to death also by the Jews. He was put to death under false pretenses because he was doing what was right, and that riled up the feathers of those who didn't want to do what was just. They wanted to do what looked good, but not what actually was. So Paul, even in his uh, uh, prisonership, is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So he's writing to this man who is a friend of his, a brother in Christ, Philemon. It's interesting that his name means one who kisses. He is expecting to receive kisses from this man. And we understand some things about him. He's a wealthy slave owner. He's a member of the church that meets in the city of Colossae. Not only that, it seems as though the church is meeting in their home in Colossae. In verse 2 here in the the epistle of Philemon, he says, uh, give our greetings to Apphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. In Colossians chapter 4, we see these people mentioned again uh, in the letter to the Colossians. So we know these are also members of the Colossian church. Colossians 4 verse 9, verse 8 really, he sent uh, Tychicus, who is probably sending uh, the letter here, uh, who is a fellow servant. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. That's Colossians 4, 8. And verse 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. It mentions in verse 17, Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. So these are people of the Colossian church that are mentioned also in this letter to Philemon. It is interesting that in the Colossian letter, He mentions Onesimus specifically. There are going to be other witnesses to this interchange between Paul and Philemon and of this brother who is faithful, who has returned, that they knew as Philemon's slave, but are now receiving as a brother in Christ. What a great blessing that is, both for Onesimus and for this church, and certainly for Philemon, who has him as a member of his household. So Onesimus, who is one of Philemon's slaves, has run away and somehow has come to Paul in Rome. You know, a big city is a good place to hide. (laughs) If you're a runaway slave, you're going to go to Rome or Corinth. Corinth was populated by ex-slaves, and so it would be easy to kind of blend in as a slave that had gained his freedom. Rome has got so many dark corners, it's easy to hide. But somehow, Onesimus has come, and perhaps he knows of this relationship of Paul and Philemon. Perhaps Paul already knew Onesimus from some earlier trip, though he's never been to Colossae. He says that in the Colossian letter, chapter 2 and verse 1. He doesn't know them to their face, but perhaps he does know Philemon and even Onesimus from some earlier meeting. He certainly speaks to them in very friendly terms, and Philemon seems to be a disciple of Paul. We'll get that from later on. At any rate, we sort of get this setting then. There's this runaway slave who's come to Paul. Now, that makes things difficult, both culturally, uh, socially, and now In terms of the gospel, there is a a bit of conflict that's going to need to be resolved. Paul says he's been praying through this first section. He prays for Philemon always. He's sending him the grace of the Lord. One thing he says I think is very interesting in verse 6 and 7 is that that Philemon has refreshed often the hearts of the saints. Paul later will call on him to refresh his own heart. But let's look at the situation here from 8 through 16. I'll reread this part. Therefore, though though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, I am an apostle after all, yet for love's sake, as your brother, I rather appeal to you. I am such a one as Paul the Aged. He's making an appeal based on his circumstances. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. He was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. I want to pause here for a moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 23. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 15 and 16, there's a very specific law in the law of Moses about what to do with a slave who has run away. And he comes to you. <laughs> you shall not give back to his master, the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst, in the place which he chooses within one of your gates, where it seems best to him, you shall not oppress him. <laughs> Paul is breaking a direct commandment from the law of Moses. Of course, Paul's no longer under the law of Moses. This was a circumstance that was meant to protect a runaway slave from being beaten to death by his master. And so Paul is actually appealing to Philemon and saying, I'm going to go against the way things were. Not only is it against what was the law in Moses' time, it's against Roman law. <laughs> Roman slaves must be returned but they are usually going to be punished to death when they come back. Paul is saying, I'm going to break the convention of Roman law and send him back and beg you not to kill him. (laughs) And I'm going to break convention with what I believed before in Moses, that I think you will protect him as I send him back to you, that he's not going to be in danger, that in fact he's going to be a blessing and going to be blessed by you upon his return. Paul wants to comply with the law. He is a Roman citizen. He's seeking in Romans 13, telling us to as well, abide by the laws of the land that you're in. But he's doing so in such a way that Onesimus is not going to be harmed. That's Paul's desire here. There is something else, though, in verse 13, returning in Philemon now. I wish to keep him with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul says, I could keep him. (laughs) He's willing to stay with me and to serve me in my chains. He's a good man, and I can use the kind of service he's offering. But I don't want to just presume that he's going to stay with me. I want you to send him to him. I don't want to be by compulsion that, well, he's already here. Paul's not going to let Philemon off the hook. Now It might seem like the easiest thing. That's a long journey back now from Rome to Colossae. And he's going to have to come back again if Philemon sends him back. It's a dangerous journey. But it's a journey that's so important for Philemon and for Onesimus. It's really easy to write a letter and say, yeah, I forgive him, just keep him. It's much harder to look Onesimus in the face and say, my brother, I forgive you. Come be with me. Let me prepare you for this journey. And then you can go and serve our brother Paul. He's going to test Philemon's heart. He's going to test Onesimus' heart. Onesimus could easily not go back to Colossae. He's sent away by Paul. He could go wherever he wanted going to have to go back there are things he needs to say to Philemon things he's done wrong before Philemon and things that Philemon needs to say to him brethren when we have a disagreement it's so easy just to say "Ah, that's okay something that we do in our home that I've tried to impress on our children something I've tried to impress on myself together with my wife when we've done something wrong and we come to someone and we say I need your forgiveness to respond by saying that's okay that's not what we're asking for. We need your forgiveness. We need to learn how to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. But we also need to learn how to humbly respond forgiving someone who's done something wrong against us. That's okay. doesn't cut it because it's not okay. If they've come asking forgiveness, they realize they've done something against us. And we need to make them understand we recognize it as well. And by God's grace, we're forgiving that debt for you. That's what Paul's doing with Onesimus and Philemon. It would be so easy just to do this all by letters. Let Paul handle both ends of it, and he's doing that, sort of, but he's sending Onesimus back. This is going to be a personal encounter and a personal response, and that's so necessary for us. Paul wants to comply with the law, but he doesn't want Onesimus harmed. So he makes this passionate and personal appeal to his friend, Philemon. He doesn't say, I'm commanding you as an apostle. He could. This is not doctrinal, as it were. But he could command him in some way as an apostle. But he says, no, I want to appeal to you as a friend. And I want to appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. I love Paul's relationship with his disciples. Here's a man who's come to Paul in desperate straits. Paul has taught him the gospel or reminded him of the gospel, at least. Now Onesimus has become a Christian. He is born to Paul while Paul's in chains. And Paul calls him a son. He wants to keep him on as an aide. But Philemon has to make that decision, as we've already said. But it's his son that he's sending back to him. How do you think Philemon's going to respond to one of Paul's children coming back? So let's see the example now as Paul explains it here in verses 17 through 25. I think this is beautiful. We begin to see what all this is really based on is not on Paul's goodness or something in him. It's all based on the grace of Christ that's available in the gospel, both to Paul and Onesimus. And to Philemon, this grace that's overarching and and runs through all of our relationships, both those within the congregation and those without. God's grace is what makes them possible, and God's grace is what bridges differences, and God's grace is what brings us into the love of Christ. Verses 17 through 25. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen to that. Receive him as you would me, he says. If you think I'm a partner, if we've been co laborers, in some way we have, my fellow worker, then receive him as you would me. He said earlier receive him, that is, my own heart. There's an appeal. Here's my son I'm sending you. Here's my heart I'm sending you. Here I'm coming in the person of Onesimus. Receive him as you would me. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Receive my heart when he comes to you. (laughs) Refresh Onesimus because he's coming trembling before you. He knows the power you have over his life and he's willing to come. Receive him as my own heart. Refresh him. I think it's beautiful how Jesus has really already mentioned this concept in Matthew chapter 10. Here's where Paul is beginning to sound an awful lot like Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, as he's about to send out the uh, disciples, he says, starting in verse 40, "...he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward." And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Remember when Paul was on his way to Damascus to drag Christians back to prison? Jesus came on him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? It is me, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he said. What we do to our brethren, we do to Christ. We're his body. We're members of one another and members of his body. And what we do to each other, we do to him, both for good and for bad. Receive him as you would me. Receive him as my own heart. Receive him as you would the one who sent me. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's actions end up showing that we truly are, at our best, ambassadors for Christ. I want to read a little before 2 Corinthians 5.20. I want to start like at about verse 16 or so. He says, From now on, this is 2 Corinthians 5.16. From now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Then he says in verse 20, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There's a new perspective on the world when we come to Christ. We don't see each other anymore as that annoying next-door neighbor. (laughs) Now he's my brother in Christ because he's come to the Lord. We don't see each other anymore as these people who I have no idea who they are they just sort of show up in the same building. You're my family. I'm so grateful that you're here. I miss not seeing you during the week and I'm so thankful when I get to see you on Sundays and on Tuesdays and during the week sometimes for some of you. What a blessing that is. Paul is saying, you're receiving me when you receive Onesimus. You're receiving Christ when you receive Onesimus because all of us together are urging people to come to Christ. Paul's acting here as a personal advocate for Onesimus' cause. Exactly as Jesus does for us. In 1 John chapter 2, John writes, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He is an advocate he pleads on our behalf, but he also is a stand-in, a substitute, a propitiation. It's something that's put in the place of something else. Did you notice how Paul does that here? <laughs> now, if he owes you anything, you think about a runaway slave. Well, he owes wages already. <laughs> he hasn't worked the days he's been a runaway, but he's probably had to steal a horse or food or something so that he can get out of there. There's bound to be something he owes, and Paul says, "You know, you've got an account with me, don't you, Ananias? Onesim- uh, don't you, Philemon?" <laughs> Don't you owe me some things? Let's just go ahead and discount that from from mine. I'll pay for his portion. And you know, and he picks up the letter now and writes with his own hand, I am telling you I'll repay. This is my signature, Paul. I will repay. But don't forget that what you owe me is greater than you could have paid. You owe me your own self besides. I gather from that that Paul taught Philemon the gospel. And Philemon was saved from his sins and owes a debt of his life to Paul because of that. Paul says that of himself, that he's a debtor to all men, (laughs) Romans 1, verse 15, that he's going to preach the gospel of salvation to all men because he's a debtor to all, because he himself was saved from a debt that he couldn't pay. Philemon legally has the power of life and death over his slave, Onesimus. But Paul says, isn't it better to take the loss than to, than to wrong a brother? Than to kill a brother? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he was arguing with the Corinthians about taking each other to court. They were going in before Gentiles. He said, it's much better just to be wronged. Take the loss. Because it's already a loss when you take your brother to court. And it's a much bigger loss than whatever you lost financially when you do that. Don't do that. Just say, it's a gift. Keep it. The truth is, justice is doing what's right, not just what is legal. We looked at that recently in the lesson about our righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees and the scribes. They did what was legally right. They went by the letter of the law, but they used the letter of the law to get around doing what was actually right. Here, it's legal to kill your slave if he ran away. But isn't it so much better to forgive him? Even to forgive him of his debts? Even to bring him in and embrace him as a brother? Isn't that much better? That's what justice is. That's what justice looks like. It's interesting that Paul can say that the account he has with Philemon has already been paid in advance. <laughs> if Put that on my account, you already owe me your own self anyway. But isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? He paid the account in advance. So he can say, if there's a need, I'll forgive you of for that. That's how he can advocate in 1 John chapter 2. But look at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed, bought back with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus paid the price ahead of time. The account was already paid, so that when he went to that cross, he could say to the ones who are nailing him on there, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, as he's being stoned, can say, Father, forgive them of this sin. Because it was paid in advance. What an amazing blessing to understand. That doesn't give us liberty just to go out and sin. Oh, well, go do some more because it's paid in advance. Paul says, absolutely not. May it not be so. But it does give us the freedom to live in a different way. Where we're not tied down and bound to the sins that we have committed. We're free to leave those behind and come serving the Lord as a willing slave. As an Onesimus that's been freed from the bounds of slavery to say, Philemon, whatever you need, I'm yours. Let me serve you as a brother. What a different attitude that brings. And So Paul says to Philemon, I know you'll obey. I know your heart, your willingness to do God's will above all else. I'm confident in your obedience. It's interesting that Paul's not saying, because you love me so much. I know you'll be obedient because you want to serve the Lord. Let me be refreshed in the Lord Refresh Onesimus in the Lord. Over and over he says that the sphere of Philemon's actions are in the Lord. And therefore I know that you'll obey. Because it's not me you're obeying. It's the Lord. The appeal that the gospel makes is based on the actions of the gospel's author. Romans 10:17. Where does faith come from? Well, hearing the word of God. Not the word of Paul. Not that he's just such a prolific preacher. He says that a lot of times they complained about the way he preached. I might get that some. But that the word he preached was so convincing and was true and was full of grace. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering because we're just so good at holding on to our faith. No, because he who promised is faithful. That's what gives the gospel its power, is the love and the truth and the grace of God that's behind it. And that's why Paul's appeal is a gospel appeal to Philemon. Look what I've done for you, but why have I done this? Because Christ has done it for me. Because Christ has done it for you. Now let's do this for Onesimus. Because Christ has done it for us and because we've done this for each other, let's allow Onesimus to receive this grace. And so Paul makes this appeal and he hopes for a faithful response. And that's exactly what the gospel does. The gospel makes an appeal and hopes for a faithful response. The gospel is preached to all men, but not all are going to respond in faith. Many are going to reject, what a great gift, and many are going to reject it. 2 Peter 3.9 says God doesn't want anyone to perish, but to have everlasting life. But there's a need for repentance involved in that, and men find that hard. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. What a beautiful thing to be talking about. First Timothy 2, he says, We ought to pray so that we'll have the freedom to serve God because God wants us to come to the knowledge of the truth and attain to salvation. That's God's desire. And as we look at the end of Philemon, Paul has helped so many others. This is not just something he's doing because he really likes Onesimus or because he really likes Philemon. This is something he does because God loves them and because God loves Paul and because God loves everyone involved in this interaction. And Paul has been doing this as the example of Christ. Christ came and died For every man. So Paul now sees every man as an opportunity for the salvation of Christ. You have Epaphras here who is a servant of the church at Colossae. He mentions him here as a fellow prisoner in Christ. But if you go back and look at the Colossian letter, he's mentioned a couple of times there. There's an indication perhaps that he's the reason that the Colossians came to know the gospel. He's someone who may have been converted by Paul in Asia when Paul was in Ephesus. And he's taken the word now to Colossae. There's some speculation about that. But in Colossians, uh, he's speaking of Epaphras there in verse uh, 7. I have 17 there, but it's supposed to be verse 7. As you learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Sounds like he had a lot to do with the Colossians receiving the gospel. Then he's mentioned again in Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. Here's a man who's been laboring for them in prayer, labored for them, teaching them the gospel, and is now with Paul, serving him in his chains, but is still praying and remembering the Colossians. You've got others mentioned here in Philemon. I love this. You've got Mark. We mentioned in our class earlier today that he's the one who had deserted Paul on an earlier trip in Acts chapter 15. In fact, Paul didn't even want to take him with him. But by the time you get around to Colossians 4 and 2 Timothy 4, Paul is reminding people what a great worker Mark is. He's encouraging him, and now Mark is with him, and he's helping him in his time of need. He also mentions Demas, who at this point is with Paul, but we know, unfortunately, from Colossians 4 and 2 Timothy 4, that sometime in there, Demas has forsaken Paul, having loved this present world, and it's going on no longer working with them. Despite Paul's efforts, despite Paul's example and encouragement, not all are going to continue. And there's others who are mentioned here almost consistently at this part of uh, Paul's life. We see Luke and Aristarchus. that are constant companions of him. And so they're mentioned together with him from Acts 27 forward. In Colossians, they're there. In 2 Timothy, over and over again, we see these same people that are following after Paul's example and are leaving an example for others to follow because all of them are following the example of Christ. So I just want to look for a moment at some things we can see overarching in this letter from Paul to Philemon. A man came to Paul who knew he was condemned to death. If he goes back, he's going to die. He's seeking some kind of harbor and he's guided to Paul where he hears the gospel. Sound familiar? If we go back, we're condemned to death. But the gospel seeks to pull us out of that and bring us forward into Christ. We're condemned without the gospel, but the gospel is our salvation. So the gospel saved this man's soul, and yet he's a runaway slave. He still faces physical death if he goes back to Philemon. And Paul says, oh, but you're going to go back to Philemon. (laughs) Can you imagine how hard that would be to hear? Has Christ ever called us to do anything that's difficult and seems like it's not going to work out well, but it's the right thing to do? How hard is true repentance? How hard is it to ask real forgiveness, to have the kind of repentance that seeks real forgiveness? It's hard sometimes, but it's necessary. And what Paul was calling Philemon and Onesimus to do is what they needed to do. So Onesimus is facing physical death. He didn't escape that just because he was converted. But Paul had confidence that Philemon was going to treat him differently. Paul really taught that the gospel had changed this man who was compelled to be a slave into a brother and now a willing servant. He'd already taught that in Romans chapter 6, that when we leave our slavery to sin, we voluntarily become slaves of Christ. And Paul is sort of exemplifying that now before Philemon with Onesimus. He's left this, this slavery that he had where you owned him, and now he's coming to you of his own free will to serve you and then... By God's grace, perhaps, for you to send him to serve me on your behalf. What a blessing that's going to be. What a difference in our outlook. In the end, Paul had said in verse 11, This man was once unprofitable to you, but is now profitable to you and to me. His name Onesimus is sort of a pun. It's not the same Greek word that's used there for profitable and unprofitable, but it is a pun because his name means useful. Oh, Onesimus has truly become useful to you and to me. How much more to you, he says in verse 16, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You think he's not going to be your best slave when he comes back now? He's coming as a brother. He's working on the same household you are. He's going to serve you better than any of your other just slaves are going to. He's choosing to serve you. And not only that, he's going to refresh you and build you up in the Lord as he serves at your side. What a blessing he's coming back to be. It's a multiplied blessing. Mark chapter 7, verse 37. Uh, Jesus here speaking of our service. I love this verse. As uh, Jesus is, is teaching and, and going about healing and confirming his teaching, he heals a, a deaf mute at this point. And they're astonished. They've already seen the other healings he's done. They're astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He makes the lame to walk. Jesus transforms lives. I used to say about myself back when I was an atheist, I was unwilling to hear. I was a mute. I was was deaf, I mean, when it came to the gospel. And I certainly had nothing worthwhile to say. But after he unstopped my ears and allowed me to hear with clarity, and after he opened my mouth and allowed me to speak the things that pertain to the gospel of life, What a difference that made in my life and in the lives of others that I've been able to influence. What a blessing that is. And I'm thankful for others to whom he's done all things well, because there are others who helped unstop my ears by speaking things that I had to stop and think about, because their ears were open to hearing the truth. If yours are open, open your mouth as well to, to transmit those things that you're hearing. Go from being unuseful to useful. I don't know what your situation is today, but I hope this letter has been an encouragement to you. I hope looking at this thing sort of compact and seeing all that's going on here will help you see your situation. (laughs) That you are, in fact, running from your master if you're not serving the Lord. He is your master. Now, he can force you. (laughs) On the day of judgment, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On that day, they'll be forced to do so. But today, you can make a choice. Because you know of the love and the grace that He's extending to you, you know that He gave His own life and spilled His own blood to pay up front the price for your sins. And He's willing to forgive you if you'll but confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you'll repent and come forward to have your sins washed away in baptism, you can start a new life no longer as a slave to sin, but volunteering to be in the service of the Lord. It's a slavery that has an overwhelming payment (laughs) It's not a salary, but it's a free gift of eternal life. The gospel can transform you from a useless slave to sin into a useful servant of God. It can do that this day. If you've already made that choice, but you haven't been serving as you should, if you've been sort of useless, God can turn that around as well if you're willing to humble yourself and come forward and confess. If we can help you with any of those needs, we'd love to do that today. We want to refresh your heart and encourage you. Won't you stand and won't you sing? Come forward if you need to while we're singing this song to encourage your obedience.